I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today in New York in the Soho Grand Hotel and I'm joined with Aaron Dignan uh, who's the CEO of Undercurrent. Uh, it's good to see you again Aaron. I have to be honest, uh, I know we were meant to catch up Bridget Lafayette uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I love this place and I particularly love that they not only give you breakfast but they give you French toast as a side. French <laughs> toast as a side. You always want to have optionality <laughs> in breakfast so you yeah. can have a bit of everything. Uh, last time we caught up we were actually in the Bahamas which I think is a significantly warmer than uh, icy cold New York today. <laughs> yeah, it was a great reprieve. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your journey because, you know, Undercurrent is, I think, one of the world's foremost digital strategy companies, but you took quite an interesting path to, to get there, didn't you? Yeah, it was completely circuitous. I mean, we, you know, we started the business as digital strategy, but even before that, I worked in psychology and brand. So I actually went to school originally for molecular biology, thinking I was going to go be a research scientist or a doctor or something like that. Looked at the industry and was really um, unsettled by the lack of progress, the controls, the regulation, all the things that looked like maybe that market was not going to be a place where I could control my destiny. Um, So I took a big step back and decided to major in psychology, which is something I always felt very comfortable with and basically turned my education into a research project about why certain brands were so deeply embedded, so relevant, so engaging with people and other brands were not. Why was it that a brand like JetBlue had fans and a brand like American Airlines really didn't, um, other than maybe people that were sort of trapped in a loyalty program. Um, So I did an enormous amount of reading, uh, conversations with people, reaching out to people in the early days of blogging on the web, writing a blog that nobody read, but other <laughs> bloggers read. Um, and, you know, I met folks like Seth Godin and others who kind of counseled me and, and start to build up a, a social network around myself. Um, and out of that came my first consulting company, which was uh, originally called Limelight, but eventually was called Brandplay. Right. And all we did was help uh, brands, particularly kind of smaller and more regional brands, but some national brands, um, think about their identity, their values, where they were going, how they were making decisions. Um, and I did that you know, through workshops and strategy sessions for years, uh, years around the country, just kind of cutting teeth. This was your 10,000 hours of pain, right? 10,000 hours of pain. Go into a boardroom with 10 executives and get them to agree on what they value and what their brand stands for in you know, 12 hours' time with no breaks and then write it up and make sure they agree with the write-up the next day after they're sort of sober and slept. Um, And so, you know, you do that a couple hundred times and then you sort of have a feel for the boardroom. So I did that um, and then I really started to become obsessed with the fact that certain brands that were really rising to the top of the list that people wanted to be like, be around, be close to, um, were also technology. You know, it was Apple. It was, you know, thinking about the impact that Twitter or Facebook was having. Um, so we, we met up with a, a couple other uh, folks in Boulder, Josh Spear and Rob Shuham, who were really thinking the same thing and maybe even a step ahead of me. And, and uh, they launched and then I ultimately joined them and, and launched um, Undercurrent. And it was basically supposed to be a digital strategy company that was completely unbiased. And was this change happening, do you think, because apparently technology brands are more involved in our daily lives? Yeah, they, I mean, if you think about sort of 
where does change happen right now? It happens at the intersection of technology and culture and people. So wherever there is a new piece of technology and people, you see enormous change. Look at cell phones, right? Yeah. Mobile phones in everyone's pocket, agent of change in modern culture. Some good change, some bad change. No, I agree with you. I mean, I always look, love that nexus between technology and anthropology. Exactly, exactly. And so we started to see each of these disruptive technologies or exponential technologies, as Singularity University would call them, as kind of a gateway to some new reality for a company and for a group of people. So what does social networking mean to a company? What does AI mean to a company today? And there's always an answer, but it's it's a little bit out of reach and, and uh, there's a little bit of a hesitancy to engage with that. So we started there with how to change things um, and then, you know, have since kind of migrated and navigated to a different business model altogether. Right. But, uh, but that was the core idea was to be this unbiased consultant partner that didn't have a vested interest in any future, just needed to sort of tell the truth and then figure out what to do about it. When you look at what kinds of problems that are at the intersection of technology and culture, you can't really be a traditionally structured consulting organization. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that a McKinsey and Accenture at Deloitte would have some difficulty getting their minds around. Right, right. I mean, if you look at the history, so if you read like Lords of Strategy or The Firm and get to the history of consulting, it came out of an accounting prowess. Like, here, let's look at the numbers and what do they tell us? Right. And how can we change the business to sort of improve performance? And then it migrates into all manner of, you know, pricing, strategy, M&A, etc. Um, but at the core of that is this belief that you can have an approach, a framework, a model, a thing that works and that lasts and that you can replicate. So you hire MBAs, you get them to use the same slides, they fill in the blanks, it's Mad Lib strategy, yeah. right? Um, that doesn't work when you don't know what's going to happen next. So when you're trying to figure out what might happen to a company like PepsiCo, which is one of our first big uh, partners, who knows? I mean, there's so many possible disruptions that could occur. Crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, health and wellness issues, globalization. This is like what you call the, a wicked problem, right? Yeah, it's a wicked problem. It's a big, you know, hairy, nasty. Which is a problem you, you don't understand until you've already solved it. Yeah, it's complexity. <laughs> it's complexity science. And so you can engage with complexity with a rigid model which means it's really difficult to scale because now you have to hire people that can handle wicked problems and so now you're looking for people that are kind of equipped with a skill set to say we don't know what, how to solve it or we don't know what the answer is but we know how to how to approach problems that don't have an obvious answer right well I mean a McKinsey and, and um, a Deloitte and these companies would traditionally hire engineers because they in a very mechanistic way right so if, if that was the model for that type of consulting what kind of people do you generally look for to have those natural intrinsic capabilities? I mean, I think we're looking for uh, recovering engineers. <laughs> we're looking for people that have some real understanding of what it takes to make something, to do something, an entrepreneur, an engineer, a maker, a doer, right. but also someone that through that process has learned the humility of uncertainty, the humility of how things may change and how rapidly. And frankly, just as a systems thinker. So if you if you think about kind of the D school and systems thinking and complexity science, like we're looking for people that kind of come more bathed in that in that understanding rather than the, you know, I know how to design an airplane wing so that it creates the Bernoulli effect or whatever. Right. Well, when I look at the way you've structured your business, you've used a lot of techniques and methodologies that come from the software world, like agile methodologies, holacracy, 
you talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, the unusual ways that you've approached your own internal culture? Yeah. What's, what's interesting is when you, when you engage with these problem types and when you're not clear about exactly what it is that you do, which is a good thing in the beginning but difficult as you scale, then you're building for change. You're always building for change. So in the very beginning, we did things like no one would sit at any one desk for more than 90 days, and then we would rotate desks. But we were still bound in this idea that you had a desk. So it was like a step in the direction of constant change, but we hadn't yet made the decision that, wait a second, why do we need desks at all? Every single piece of the business operation has been through that interrogation over the last eight years. So it's like, you know, we should keep uh, financial information private. Why? Because that's what most companies do when they're private. But maybe we shouldn't. What's the value? What's the value of opening it up? Um, maybe we should sell, you know, whatever people want to buy. Or maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should be very rigid about having a very clear focus and putting people in a box. So in the last uh, two years, we've used Holacracy as a way to give the power of that changing and that editing to the employees themselves. So now instead of me thinking up those ideas, everyone's thinking up those ideas and testing them. Are you just being contrarian or, or is it? <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> or, or is it more like you're just trying to be a bit more emergent about responding to issues as they turn up? I think, I think it came from an instinct or an intuition about being contrarian, that whatever the way that things are being done now can't be the best way, right? right? That how can we believe that we're, we've fully achieved what's possible in humanity? So I have an, a knee-jerk reaction to any dogma that let's try a different way. But what we've learned through practice is that not only that, but also I don't know. You know, I don't, just because I'm in charge, quote unquote, doesn't mean that I know a better way. It doesn't mean that I can see all the complexity of the system. So that combined with the desire to try other things has sort of led to a, well, let's give it away. You know, let's create, let's find the few things that we are sure of and that we want to make certain. Let's own those at the top, the purpose of the business, the vision, the values, you know, to some extent. But let's let everything else be a little bit more open, and that's been the experiment. Well, this has been a microcosm for a bigger idea that, you know, you and uh, other people in the industry were talking about, which is the responsive organization. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, in a nutshell, what, what is the responsive organization, and, and I guess why now? So if you think about a time of rapid change versus a time where things didn't change, it's really this debate between uncertainty and certainty between what you know and what you don't know. Um, and so because of the rate of change in the world now, there's more uncertainty, there's more complexity, and that means that you have to engage in problems in this new way that we were talking about. And what we noticed is that when we looked at companies that were doing really, really well in the 21st century, like a Tesla or a Google or a Facebook, and we looked at uh, organisms and examples from science and nature that also do a really good job under stress and volatility, that still change and adapt quickly, like complex adaptive systems like, you know, ants or... Slime uh, mold. Yeah, slime mold. <laughs> Love that one. We're um, going to come back to slime mold. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they use a very different playbook. They use a playbook that values things differently than what we value in traditional business. And so we've created a responsive org movement as a way to kind of hold up these two modes or modalities in contrast to each other. Not to say that one is always right and one is always wrong, but to say there's a new set of skills that we need as organizations and individuals that allow us to prioritize some things that we're not comfortable with over some things that we are, like putting adaptivity ahead of efficiency, which is very contradictory to what you know the sort of traditional Wall Street market wants. Yeah, um, well, I mean, this is very appealing as a philosophy, but how do you retrofit this to a, a big organization with massive corporate antibodies and structures and org charts and a very aggressive HR department? Yeah, it's, well, it's difficult, and, and we, we sort of work on that puzzle every day. That's sort of our big you know, hairy problem now. Yeah. Um, but what we've learned is that 
you know, individuals still make up those companies and individuals by and large are very engaged and excited and, and motivated by these ideas. So if you can get individuals to try it, to, to sort of put it on, take it for a spin, use it on a project basis, on a team basis, on a P&L basis, um, it does catch. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a harder way to work. It's an easier way to work in this environment. It's just hard to change. And so for us, it's really been a, a hearts and minds game, one, one head at a time, one team at a time. So when you go into a big uh, corporation, is really your goal to recruit a few cheerleaders and start a pilot project? I mean, how do you sort of, how do you sort of start that chain reaction? Yeah, well we do, I mean, we've learned the hard way that we do need some kind of support from the top, because if you're trying to break a power structure, you need power. Right. So, uh, so we, do, we, we do definitely look for that sponsor that gets it and that wants to empower their team and go faster. And for us, that seems to be the thing that is catching with the senior management teams is, you can go faster. And for them, they see the pressure, they feel the pressure, so they know that speed, speed of iteration, speed of innovation, speed of connection, that all matters. So you want to go faster, here's how to go faster without breaking the car. And, and that's the, the gateway. And then from there, we're looking for project teams that have important, visible, critical projects on their plate. Not some skunk works in the corner, not you know some little project that no one's going to notice. We did that. That didn't work because yeah. nobody cares. So if it's but called if the innovation department, you're already suspicious. Right? Not interested. <laughs> I want to work on the new compensation strategy. Right. I want to work on the product that has to get out the door or else you're going to miss the year. Um, so we sort of try to find one or two of those marquee projects, but still a project, um, and, and let that team work in a new way and let that team organize in a new way. Uh, and then when the results become clear, then we start to spread that. So what you're really attacking in a sense is from first principles, the, the mechanisms of communication and how people work, as opposed to the higher order things of what they're doing or thinking about. Right? Yeah, it, it, it's funny, I, I don't get into this very much because most people don't care, but it's at the end of the day it actually is all about information, it's about information science, and if you think about what is information, everything is information, right? The table is information, the formula, the algorithm you use to define your sales calls, it's all information that's either locked or unlocked. And so at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is increase the speed at which that information is both being unlocked, being transported and fluidly moving around the organization, and then being digested and turned into actions and change. So you're kind of making an information computer, literally the word computer, out of the organism. Can it be, can it compute? Can it figure Which out? Which is why networks are so important. Exactly, exactly. And I know both of us share a, a common and quite perversely disturbing <laughs> interest in slime mold and ants. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, but these are essentially organisms that are both emergent, but whose resilience is based on their network-based communication yeah. protocols. Well, and in fact, with a lot of those things, I've started to see them not as individuals, but only in the aggregate. So if you sort of imagine people talking about our brains as just always talking about neurons, it doesn't make sense. You wouldn't just talk about neurons, you would talk about brains. Yeah. And it, it's equally weird to talk about ants or an individual slime mode cell as a thing. An ant is not a thing by itself. It would be dead in a day. An ant is part of a brain. You don't, it doesn't have to be homogenous though, does it? No, not at all. No, it's completely, in some cases it's very heterogeneous, but it's a system, not an individual. And that's actually the big challenge that we're faced with right now as we look at ways to bring this to scale is that human beings are very used to being individuals and we want to have it our way we want to take advantage of the system it's house of cards right 
politics, cloak and dagger, you know, individual attribution. Um, and these systems don't reward that. These systems reward a sort of selfless participation that lets the system hum and the system think and the system win. And what's the payoff for an individual in, in that kind of mechanism? Is it the sense of purpose? Well, we think two things. One, definitely the sense of purpose or meaning. If you're part of the right tribe with the right goal, man, you can really change the world and that's exciting. But the second thing is that you know, what's good for the system isn't always bad for the individual and unlike ants, we don't have to die when we make mistakes and things like that. So what ends up happening is that the experience of working there, the connections, the friendships, the kinships, the mentorship, all that is vastly better than in the old system. So it really is a question of, is it perfect? No, but it's a hell of a lot better than the other system that was holding you down, that was limiting your growth. This is a growth environment. One of the stories I know you tell that illustrates the difference between individuals and systems is the difference between ants and bees. <laughs> which is, which fortunately, I think is different to the story between the birds and the bees. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> which I think our listeners don't need to hear, but could you maybe elaborate a little on that? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, bees are interesting too, and in many ways they are a complex system and they are quite adaptive, but they, a lot of bee hives divide the work. So you have a drone, you have someone that's out collecting, you have the queen, you have, you know, different types of workers with different types of roles. And the communication protocols among that group are a little bit different, a little bit less responsive. Right. Um, and so, you know, whereas ants are completely homogenous, you look at like a, you know, a, a colony of harvester ants, they're all genetically basically identical. They're all dividing the work based on what needs to happen based on information they're receiving. So literally, they did an experiment that I love. Deb Wilson was talking about this, where normally the, the, the uh, patroller ants that would go out and see where it's safe to hunt and look for seeds would come back, and then the harvester ants would go out and harvest. And what they found is that, or I guess the, you know, the forager ants, and what they found is that if they just took the pheromone off of the patrollers, put it on glass beads, and just dropped the beads into the ant colony at the right pace, the ants would still come out and go harvest because all they're actually looking for is that information, that one little signal. And not only did they look for the signal, but the rate at which it came back. So they're actually looking at the rate of return as a signal for how fast they should run out and go hunt. And that kind of stuff just makes you rethink, like, they don't even see each other as ants. They're blind, actually. Right. Right? They don't even see each other. They just see information. So is, is, is this potentially your theory about why, you know, bees may die out, die out in that generation, <laughs> but we're never going to get rid of those bloody ants? Never going to get rid of the ants. The ants are doing great. Um, yeah, it's possible that bees' system is, is not... Uh, adaptive enough that they're not you know not able to navigate this it's possible they may figure that out and, and actually change their method of organization based on evolution because that's you know that's the advantage of having a lot of beehives but they're certainly struggling right now and it is interesting to note those differences so it might be a metaphor for what we're seeing in business well, when you're looking at networks inside companies I mean what's a sign of a healthy internal social graph inside a business yeah I mean, I mean it's got to be more than just people using Yammer or something yeah kind of well I mean network. it certainly helps if they've already moved to a real-time uh, communication system because that's speed right and being able to do that in collectives and in, in you know troops is important um, we also look for working in public so whether it's using something like a Google Docs or a Microsoft 365 or even just a, p a piece of paper on the wall, are they exposing their information in real time to each other? Or are they waiting for the perfect presentation on Friday with the boss? And that difference is huge. So there's a little bit of knittedness and then there's a little bit of publicness that we look for. And, and is there any sense of to which you design a perfect office? I mean, you know, you, you see these, you know, these, these big companies, uh, the first thing they do when they make a lot of money is build some super campus. Yeah. Uh, but is the future of the office really a place or is it more of a work mode? 
I think it's both. I think, you know, there's a big debate right now about remote work versus in-person work, and some of the strongest, most responsive companies in the world really believe in one or the other. Yeah. So it's really hard to untangle that bit. But what we do know is that, you know, the environment sends you signals about what matters. So if I see an environment that has no whiteboards, that sends me a signal about what matters and what I should do. And I work with several clients where you go to the office and you cannot find a surface to write on. Why would you need to write on a surface? And then you go to another office and it's the entire walls are painted in idea paint. Right. And that sends a signal. So I think space matters. Um, but I think ultimately what matters more is the behaviors and the sort of mores and you know, practices that become um, habits for people. And we've been playing a lot at work with that, that you know, now that we're at a certain scale and we have a certain set of patterns, a new person comes in and they almost don't have a choice. They're going to end up kind of um, metabolizing that pattern set. For good or bad. For good or bad, yeah. And then maybe changing it a little bit on, you know, in their own way. You know, one thing I wonder is when you take a more global perspective is how much of this is culturally ingrained. I mean, there, there's an argument that one of the reasons why um, American companies are so good at building software in general is that it's very, you know, consistent with their with their worldview. Uh, and, and in some ways, what we're talking about here is a more software-driven mentality to to work. Is this hard to export to other markets if you're a global country? I think I think it's um, it's very difficult to take a snapshot of the world in time right now and say that everybody's on the same page yeah. with what they value and what their culture says is the right way to do business. And there are certainly cultures where a command and control mindset is still in its heyday. Yeah. It might like, be. Like Korea, for example. Totally. Korea, Japan. Can you imagine Japan, Samsung so. US and Samsung Korea on the same enterprise social network? Right, right, right. But yeah. It's totally not different gonna, models of communication. Yeah. And I think that's either a result of the market's maturity state. It might be that it's going to get to that next place, or it might be something that's so deeply ingrained in the culture that it's going to be a struggle. And I think we see the same thing happen on on non-business sides. We're just saying, like, you know, what is like Arab Spring, right? Like, yeah. is the way it's done the right way, or is everything moving in a direction of more egalitarian, more participatory, more you know, open? It seems that that's on the long arc of history. That's where we're headed. So any culture that's not on board with that is going to have to give up a little bit of its past in order to participate in the future. Did you feel that the arc is a positive one? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, you know, in some sense you could take the ant analogy and say this is a horrible model of the workplace where we're effectively all, you know, completely dispensable and we're responding to signals and... Yeah, well, I mean, luckily we don't have to go that far, right? So we, you know, the, there's two thoughts in mind when I look at this. One is that when you measure the engagement and the, and the workplace satisfaction of people that are working in this new way, it's higher than the other way. So we don't have to debate about whether it's a more humanitarian experience. Yeah. It's a better experience. It's better than the horrible experience. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but what, what I am worried about and that I, where I do hear where you're coming from is that if you look at a future that's dominated by robotics, by AI, if you watch the Humans Need Not Apply video on YouTube, yeah. You could see a future where actually bringing these ideas to their full fruition would mean kind of taking people out of the equation altogether. Yeah. Because the, you know, why not have algorithms just doing all the work? And, well, and that's a little bit scary. Well, there is a the big debate in the moment. Uh, you know, everyone from uh, Hawking to um, Elon Musk saying that we have, to, <laughs> we have to worry about robots and AI as existential risks. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I've often wondered is that whose jobs are actually at risk? Uh, right. I mean... When you have uh, machine learning and algorithms and monitoring software, is it the, the people in the warehouse who are going to lose their jobs? Is it the people in the boardroom? Is it the middle managers? What, what does the workforce look like in, in a more enterprise AI world? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in, in second machine age, um, 
the authors talk a lot about how there are tasks that are routine and non-routine, and there are tasks that are cognitive and non-cognitive. And basically their model of how it's going to eat the world is the routine, non-cognitive tasks go first. Right. So, you know, navigating my car to the movie theater, right? Like that is the same every time. It's routine. It's non-cognitive. You don't have to think up some new creative answer. Um, so you look at, you know, tasks like that. You look at uh, accounting. You look at tax law. You look at even le most legal research. Yes, let's get rid of the lawyers. No yeah. one's going to complain No one wants that. the lawyers, so you get rid of that. <laughs> but even, you know, I was, I was actually in Texas for a speech a couple weeks ago, and I stopped at a truck stop. And I looked at a sea of trucks, and I thought, how many of those people know that in five years' time they're all going to be out of work? And when you do the math, you know, Great Depression-era unemployment was actually not that many people. We could very easily have that many people unemployed. I really hope for your physical safety you didn't get on a soapbox and give that speech to all those truckers. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I'll tell you what I do do is every time I'm in a car with an Uber driver that's really nice to me, I, I tell them to think hard about what they're going to be doing for a living in five to ten years. Right. You know, be aware of what might be coming and think about your options. Because they are to Uber what the envelopes were to Netflix. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I, and I feel for them. And I think, frankly, in a lot of cases, this is an opportunity for people to do more meaningful work that they're capable of doing. But they're just, you know, stuck in something menial. In other cases, it might be really, it might be really difficult and detrimental. So we have to navigate both. But. And what, what time frame are we talking about? I mean, at the moment, we've got machines that have learnt by watching YouTube to recognize cats or play yeah. Space Invaders. And, yeah. You know, at, at, what, at what point do do we really start to see the impact of, of AI in, in the workforce? Well, I think, I mean, to a certain extent, we already are. So you know, most people don't know that about eighty percent of the stock market is now traded by algorithms, but it is. So, you know, most of your modern global capitalist system is being run by computers already. Um, but, I, you know, and you go to the grocery store and there used to be checkers and now there's those little things you check out yourself. That's a robot, <laughs> you know, that is. Yeah. Um, so I think it'll, it'll come slowly. Uh, but what's interesting about exponential technologies is that they're exponential. So there's literally an arc that says it's not very interesting, it's not very interesting, it's not very interesting, and then suddenly it's very interesting. And I think it'll be the exact same thing. So we'll see probably another two to three years, maybe four to five years of not really sure what to make of it. And then one day we're going to wake up. I mean, I have a two-year-old son. I'm convinced he will not have to learn how to drive. Convinced. My wife and I are like, forget about it. Don't even worry about it. Well, what advice are you going to give your son? I mean, what do you think he should study to be well prepared to survive in this world? It's We talk about this constantly. And I, I basically have a four-block matrix as a good as a good traditional consultant right <laughs> I got a four block matrix and and basically what it is is it's learn how to create things alone and create things together learn how to solve problems alone and solve problems together and I know it sounds really reductionist but I actually really believe that if you unpack those skills you've got a lot of what it'll take to to navigate a kind of exponential complex uncertain world and this is the computational thinking yeah Paradox. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we do at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, it's been a great pleasure seeing you again. Thank you for your thoughts. And this being New York, I know you've got a million things to do. So absolutely. No, thanks for breakfast. So thanks for catching up. All right. See you soon. See you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.